The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you so much for being part of the show. And of course, as always, I thank those of you who've been so active in promoting the show and helping the word get out about the show. I also know that uh, if you are a regular listener, you will want to be reassured that this show is taped in an utterly sustainable way. You will want to be assured that the show is carbon neutral and environmentally sensitive. I'm sure you will all want to know that any carbon dioxide exhaled by your humble host during the production of this show is immediately absorbed by a small indoor forest of gigantic rubber trees that are doing all but obscuring the walls of the studio. It also makes it difficult to reach uh, switches for lighting and air conditioning, and it also impacts the acoustics a little bit, but these are small prices to pay in order to be able to attest and to certify that we are indeed carbon neutral. I think you'll be pleased to know also that uh, we generate our own electricity for our electronic equipment. Uh, My four assistants, who are at high desks, uh, they are entering information in computers, they are transcribing, but all four of them are not sitting on high-tech air-on office chairs. No! No, everybody, all the four assistants are sitting on saddles attached to stationary bicycles, and while they're working, they are peddling away. Now, that's just part of their employment contract. They are peddling away, and the rear wheel of the stationary bicycle on which they're sitting, hoisted above the ground as it is, is attached by means of rubber transmission belts um, to small generators. And these generators produce 24 volts DC, which is exactly the right uh, voltage and current to operate most of our equipment here. And uh, this is the way we function, because we want to be environmentally sensitive in no way at all do we want to contribute to global warming or even climate change, or for that matter, global cooling, if that's a soon-to-be-discovered problem. No, we are on the side of the gods. We are virtuous. And talking of that, uh, in the last show, last week's show, we had a show entitled, Fathers Do Not Create Babies. No, babies create fathers and peace and prosperity. Long title. That show uh, contained a long starting segment, which I made up. And I feel obliged to confess this because uh, I actually received a number of letters. When I say a number of letters, enough for me to note and uh, decide to comment on today. I received a number of letters from people who didn't get the joke, who didn't realize my hoax. 
Um, I totally made up the first segment. I used Greta Thunberg, and for those of you who may not uh, have uh, paid much attention to this, well, you're fortunate if her hysterical, high-pitched voice did not intrude into your world during the last month. But uh, I did take her uh, high-pitched and hysterical screed, and uh, we fiddled around with it a little bit. We threw in a few extra how-dare-yous. That was her favorite phrase. How dare you? How dare you? And we threw in a few more of those, and uh, I uh, pretended that it was actually a uh, uh, a cry from not a Swedish girl, but a Danish girl. Not from Stockholm, but from near Copenhagen, and not named Greta Thunberg, but named Helga Lunenberg. And I was thinking that some of you might catch the lunar illusion uh, there, but uh, it doesn't matter. The, uh, the point is that I wanted to show that, uh, that the real threat, if there is such a thing as a real threat to the future of 16-year-old youngsters today, is not global warming. The real threat is financial, and it's a far more serious threat. Look, let's be honest. What do you think poses a greater threat to the future happiness and successful living of today's 16-year-old? Do you think it is the highly controversial and utterly unproven theory that the world is heating up noticeably, and furthermore, the highly dubious theory that such minimal heating would harm rather than help food production. Do you really think that is the major threat facing today's 16-year-olds, or is it financial shortage? Does anyone really have to think twice about this? What do I mean by financial shortage? Well, number one, uh, talking about the United States, but again, the relevance to whatever country you're listening in. And by the way, thank you very much for those of you who've written to me during the last week to tell me which countries you are listening from. I love that. I love being able to pop another country pin in the chart, in the world map. And so... Thank you. We've got listeners from Saudi Arabia. We've got listeners from Pakistan. We've got listeners from Ghana. We've got listeners from Lagos and Vietnam, Australia, New Zealand. That was just this past week. So uh, thank you very much indeed. And you'll pardon me talking about the United States, but it's obviously the area with which I'm most familiar. And furthermore, the ills currently afflicting this country have either already reached your land or I'm afraid there's every possibility that they soon shall. And so uh, uh, I'm talking about the financial shortage being faced by a 16-year-old today. What does life look like for them in five years' time? Well, right now, the tax burden that... uh, that, that that they would pay the day they start work. Let's say that uh, they'd start work in about five years' time, 
their tax burden now, it'll be more then, probably, but right now the tax burden is already just based on the interest on the national debt. Okay, let me explain. The national debt in the United States of America is now $22 trillion. Trillion dollars is a um, huge figure. Uh, it is a million, million dollars, or a thousand billion, if you like. So a trillion is 10 to the power of 12, which is a 10 with, with 12 zeros after it. Six zeros is a million. 12 zeros is a million, million. Uh, a billion is 10 to the 9, and so it's, uh, um, it's, it's 10 with 9 zeros. And, uh, and the reason I mention this is because if we understand that the national debt is $22 million, and, uh, and a national debt is very serious, right? It's, it means that we have accumulated, each year we've been spending so much more than we've brought in through taxation and, and other revenue, uh, the result is that the amount, the deficit has grown to $22 million. Now, this is a very unhealthy way to run your home, your household, your own finances, and it's a terrible way to run a country. Why? Well, for the same reason that uh, running up debt is such a bad mistake. And by the way, if you are, heaven forbid, but if you happen to be one of the many, many people afflicted by debt, I beg you to uh, go to Dave Ramsey, DaveRamsey.com. Uh, my friend Dave Ramsey and his organization, Financial Peace, uh, helps people get out of debt. Because the problem is, if you just think about it, is that uh, you have to pay the interest on that debt. And if any of you have ever run up your credit cards and bothered to take a look at the small print, you will be shocked to see the rate of interest. Some of you are paying 20%, 25% even. Do you know what that means? It's like, I mean, I, you could borrow money from the mafia probably for less than that. And so on your credit card, you're, you're paying 25% interest. Uh, it's very difficult to get out from under that because you never have enough money left to pay down the principal. All you're doing is paying that minimum payment. Well, as bad as it is for you, it is even worse for a country. And so uh, let alone having enough money to pay off the national debt, uh, the enough money to pay it is, is, uh, is very serious. So even if uh, the government pays only 2.5%. And again, short-term um, short government securities, U.S. Treasuries pay uh, a little bit more, long-term uh, pay, excuse me, the other way around, pay a little less. And uh, But when you add it all up right now, the government is paying about 2.5% interest uh, with every likelihood that is going to have to go up. But again, not a profit, so let's just go with what is, right? It's not going to go down, that I can assure you. So they're paying 2.5% on $22 trillion. Uh, I did the arithmetic. It's not very hard. It comes out that uh, each and every American, assuming just over 300 million Americans, each one of us uh, is on the hook for a minimum of $15,000 a year. That's $1,250 every month before you do anything else. And so um, 
it, you just think about what this does. So if we're talking about Helga Lunenberg, yes, I tried to use my parody last week to show that instead of worrying about climate change, if she had any smarts at all, she'd be worried about her future financial security. Because that means that before she pays taxes for um, uh, basic, uh, you know, keeping an army and keeping a country secure, and before she pays for uh, water and utilities and electricity and sewers, all of that, there's already over twelve, over uh, over $1,000 a month has to be paid just to keep the interest going on the national debt. This is a big problem, right? And and so I, I tried to depict uh, Helga Lunenberg as being as hysterically upset as Greta Thunberg was, but about something that really matters. And I, look, Helga Lunenberg was also upset that most college courses do not even come close to preparing you for a job, let alone a career. That's true. The overwhelming majority of courses for which people sign up at college and spend four years going through are uh, rubbish. They're time wasters and money wasters. And so this mythical 16-year-old girl from Denmark, Helga Lunenberg, is likely to find herself with a huge college tuition debt and no job in five years' time. And uh, she should actually be hysterically fearful of global warming? Really? Is that what you really think? I'm telling you about something she should really be worried about. But no, she's worried about climate change. Now, why does government obsess over climate change? Well, for the same reason that silly 16-year-old Scandinavian schoolgirls prefer to obsess over climate change rather than tidying their room or doing well at school or getting an after-school job while learning financial literacy. It's easier. It feels more virtuous. And above all, one's performance cannot be measured since it's all about how passionately one feels the frightening rising temperatures. So instead of doing the things that could really improve her life, instead of worrying about things that really matter, like developing good study habits and good work habits, getting a job, learning something about money, uh, maybe doing something for her community, no. Uh, Greta Thunberg is flying across the ocean to lecture foolish and indulgent uh, adults who should know better and who uh, uh, prostrate themselves before her, listening to her insulting screed. Really? I mean, yeah, that's why... I created last week Helga Lunenberg, who was just as hysterical and just as indignant because it actually used Greta Thunberg's voice, but it was about something that actually mattered, which was the fact that the financial future of today's 16-year-olds has been stolen 
by politicians of this and the last generation. It's terrible. And so we all obsess about climate change. Yeah, it makes us feel so virtuous. We're doing something for the world. We really care. But you see, we don't actually have to do anything. We just have to sound indignant and angry and hysterical. But there's nothing we actually have to do. I mean, are you actually going to go to China and uh, offer to work in one of their factories for free so they can turn off some of the electricity? Really? I mean, it's silly. What are you really going to do? You're going to slow down India's. And in any event, uh, who even knows, right, whether there is any validity to this? And please don't talk about scientific consensus. That is utter and complete nonsense. It doesn't exist. And, um, and I'm not in any way certain at all that there is such a thing as climate change. I think the hockey stick graph has been distorted. I think the already admitted hoax that came from the English labs that have provided a great deal of the false information about cl climate change has never been corrected for. So I don't even believe, I, I see no incontrovertible evidence of uh, increase in temperatures. I also am not in any way persuaded that if there was such a change that it's man-made, and I'm finally totally not persuaded that it's bad, right? I, I'm, I'm not at all sure that it's bad. Um, if America's bread basket spread further north and we were able to grow food for an extra month a year, I'm not sure that's such a disaster. I mean, we already have enough, but always can grow more. And so... Uh, uh, that's what I was trying to do. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's important to ask ourselves, why does government obsess over climate change? And I said, well, yeah, for the same reason that silly 16-year-old Scandinavian schoolgirls do, uh, because politicians cannot be held to account. Oh, they're worried about climate change. And that's fine. Nobody's going to bug them about um, uh, overdue for repair infrastructure and pipes and bridges and uh, how about putting power supplies underground instead of stringing ugly wires through neighborhoods? No, we don't have to talk to politicians about that because they're busy trying to solve the climate crisis. And we foolish and docile citizens play along and we let them off the hook. We prevent them and we tolerate them uh, reneging on doing the things they really ought to do, which really would be helpful and would improve our lives because, oh, they're so busy saving us from climate change. And so uh, government can go ahead and take all kinds of actions and spend all kinds of your money because people are foolishly sold on this crisis. Do you remember Rahm Emanuel? He was uh, President Obama's chief of staff. He had a famous phrase that he was caught telling Obama regularly, never let a crisis go to waste. It's pure socialism, by the way. Uh, manipulate the foolish farm animals. You know who I mean? Those people who in better times used to be called citizens. Manipulate the foolish farm animals into believing that there is a crisis. And once there's a crisis, the people will tolerate you doing anything at all in order to solve the crisis. 
And to the extent that government has a mind, and institutions do have minds, you know, um, they're like other organisms, right? Whether it's a, uh, a sunflower or my forest of gigantic rubber plants, whatever it is, uh, all organisms do have um, intents. They do things predictably. Like all other organisms, government tries to stay alive and to thrive and to grow. That's true for my business and your business. It's true for your parent-teachers association and for your Boy Scouts group. It's true for the uh, local democratic committee. Every institution is just like a rubber plant. It wants to stay alive, it wants to thrive, and it wants to grow. And just like a creeper might strangle other plants that are competing with it for water or for sunlight, a creeper will go ahead and strangle the competition in order that it can get the water and sunlight and nourishment that it needs so it can stay alive and thrive and grow. So look, uh, that is like government. In fact, I ask you to take it as a given that people in government, right, and I, I want you to hear this clearly, I want you to take it as a given, just think about it, People in government, whether they are elected people or whether they are appointed people or whether they're bureaucrats, bureaucrats, people hired to government, whatever it is, could you agree when I say they all want to keep their jobs, they want to keep their positions? I think that's axiomatic, wouldn't you? Because otherwise they could all resign. Right, if a bureaucrat said, you know what, I don't think it's fair that I'm making 1.3 times what I'd make if I got a job in the private sector and I'm getting benefits way beyond anything I could get in the private sector and I have job security way beyond any, I don't think that's fair, I don't like it, I'm quitting. All right, God bless him, that's fine. But he's not doing that, he's there. I think he wants to keep his job. People who are appointed, right, people go to enormous lengths to get a government appointments. All kinds of appointments, uh, they're to commissions, you can get appointed if you give a lot of money to a campaign. The president might appoint you as an ambassador or a consul to another country. Uh, whatever it is, if you are an elected representative, I think you want to keep your job, right? If you didn't, you'd quit. Nobody would stop Alexander Ortezio-Cortez quitting. If she decides, you know what, this isn't fair, I'm not qualified for this job, I'm barely qualified to be a bartender, I really shouldn't be taking so much money and building up a retirement package by serving in Congress, uh, I'm, I'm too inexperienced, I'm not bringing any value to the job, if anything, I'm disturbing people, you know what, it's not right, I'm going to quit, God bless her, we'd love that, but uh, as long as bureaucrats and elected uh, people and appointed people do not quit, I think you can agree with my axiom that they want to keep their jobs, right? I think you could also agree they want to feel important. That's a very real human instinct, by the way, and that's true for all of us. We all want to feel significant uh, on some level. Now, all right, most of us do not need to feel significant or important on a national level or even on a statewide or citywide level. Uh, one of the great things of, of being part of a family is you are important right there. 
And for most of us, that is sufficient. And if we also have a feeling of importance from our work, well, so much the better. So we're very fortunate. But please don't think that folks who work in government are any different. In spite of the fact that uh, you will often hear them using phrases like, uh, I want to be in public service. I want to give back to the country. This is all very pretty talk, but not a single one of them is foregoing their salary, except I think President Donald Trump. But nobody else foregoing their salary in spite of the fact, oh, they want to work in public service. Oh, they want to give back. Uh, no. Uh, let's let's recognize uh, what is for what is. It's very, very simple. Um, bureaucrats and appointees and elected people, they want to keep their jobs. They want to feel important. They want power and they want money to spend. But above all, they want to stay in power and extend patronage to their friends and their supporters and their followers. That's what they want to do. And uh, I, I don't mind telling you, it's a nice job if you can get it. Imagine being a congressman, being a senator in the United States. It's a nice job. Having a job in the IRS or in the post office or in the... Uh, have, you, have you seen what people get paid working for Amtrak? It's amazing. It's, I mean, God bless them. They, they're, they're not doing anything wrong. They're just taking advantage of a situation. But uh, uh, post office, right? This is terrific. Now, um, when I speak about why does the government uh, obsess over climate change, you know, you would say to me, well, the government's not anything. Government is a huge organization. It's an institution. It's an entity. It doesn't have a mind. It doesn't have a will. And so what are you talking about, Rabbi Lappin, when you say that government is enthusiastic about climate change? Well, I'm showing you that government isn't a faceless automaton. Government is made up of lots and lots and lots of people, and they all share certain desires. And I think that's what's really important to understand. If I'm on my way to a dentist appointment, and I left a little bit late, and so I'm a little bit stressed, and I'm driving as quickly as I can, and all of a sudden, I reach a jam up on the freeway. And what do I discover? That uh, everybody is slowed down. And I'm waiting. We're crawling along. We're crawling along. Finally, finally, uh, after a 10-minute delay, we finally reach the point of the delay, which happens to be an overturned car on the other side of the freeway with ambulances and fire engines and people standing around. And as soon as we're past that, traffic picks up and I can speed off on my way to my dentist appointment. But would I be right in assuming that all the people who slow down ahead of me had a meeting in a dark cellar last night where they all agreed that at 10.15 the next morning they'd all slow down on the freeway to make Rabbi Daniel Lappin late for his dentist appointment. No, of course not. But that was the effect. So how did they all act as if they were in collaboration with one another? Because it's perfectly predictable that nine out of ten of us, when we drive past a gruesome accident, 
will slow down because we are human beings and we are obsessively um, fascinated by the beginning of life and the end of life. We're fascinated at the prospect of peering around the curtain that obscures the essence of life. And so sex as the beginning of life fascinates us, and death as the end of life fascinates us, in sometimes in a ghoulish and macabre fashion, but fascinates as it does. And so the majority of people are going to slow down when they pass an accident, because maybe they'll see a dead person, they'll see death, they'll see gore. That's what we do. And so, in spite of the fact that there was no conversation, no collaboration, no communication, everybody acted in concert with one another to make me late for my appointment. And so, government is exactly the same. So, a lot of people, huge number of people, are they all having regular meetings to discuss how to oppress the citizenry? Do they meet on how to build a growing government that will be able to become a tyranny eventually, giving them infinite... No! They don't have to have meetings like that any more than the folks on the freeway this morning had to have a meeting. No! Because I show you that all the people who work in government, appointees, electees, uh, bureaucrats, they all have the same interests. They all want to feel important, they all want to keep their job, they all want to stay in power, they all want to extend patronage. So they've had no conversation about this with one another that I'm aware of. There's no formal cooperation, there's no organized collaboration, but they all, all these millions of people who work in government, state government, county government, city government, federal government, they all agree automatically on many things. They all agree on, for instance, the importance of government. Well, yeah. I mean, who wants to work for a completely insignificant and irrelevant entity? Right? Would you be proud to work for a company that's making buggy whips just in case horse and buggies come back into fashion? And that would be at least something reasonable. But nobody wants to work for a meaningless organization. And so automatically, without any communication or conversation, everyone who works in government believes that government is important. They all believe the value of government, right? Obviously, government is valuable. I am doing valuable work. That's why I'm important. And uh, if government is important and valuable, then surely they all agree that it is good to increase governmental power. Because what they say to themselves is, we're only wanting to help, and we're only trying to improve things for all Americans, for the American people, in spite of the fact that that phrase is meaningless today, because we are at least two different American people occupying the same real estate. But that's what they say. Government is important. Government is valuable. Increasing the power of government is, by definition, good. It's axiomatic. I'm sure you'll agree. Because if government is good and important and is only doing good and important things and is only doing valuable things, then the more power the government gets, the more good and wonderful and valuable things it can do. Uh, I think you would agree with me that everybody who works in government 
wants to increase the available money for government to do things with. Well, again, all right, you don't need me to prove that to you. It's axiomatic. You got it. It's simple. Without any conversation, everybody who works in government is automatically in favor of tax increases. They're exactly like the, uh, uh, the, the folks jamming up the freeway. They didn't meet to discuss this, but they're all acting in concert with one another. And so it is everybody who works in uh, the educational bureaucracy. Uh, by the way, unions are very closely tied to all of this. That's one of the reasons they support the Democratic Party, because the Democratic Party is the party of government. And uh, they all agree on increasing taxation, of course. You might say, well, why would they do that? It increases their tax burden. Yeah, true, minimally, but it doesn't even begin to compare to the extra money they are able to claim through union actions. And as you know, government employees now are able to unionize, which is an extraordinary thing. But uh, there they are. So... Um, they obviously all agree with no official meetings. They all agree that increasing the available money for government to do all the wonderful things that it does is obviously a good idea. Uh, they all agree that increasing the dependency of citizens is a good thing. Well, yeah, sure, because I like feeling needed, don't you? It's a horrible thing to feel not needed. And again, one of the great things of a family is that as a father or as a mother, you feel needed, and you are needed. And all of that is wonderful, and it's good. And if you're a child in a family, you also feel needed. You're an essential part of it. You know full well that if you don't show up at the dinner table, everyone's going to say, where is Johnny? Because you're needed. And so when you're an adult and you're working and you're part of government, then you want to feel needed. And if all the citizens, all the farm animals in your society were completely independent, they didn't need you for anything at all, well, how could you possibly feel needed? And so once again, automatically with no conversation or planning, it's very simple. They all want to see dependent citizens because... The truth is, it's very flattering when people knock on your door and say, can I get some help from you? People like that. Uh, whether they respond or not is a different story. But being asked, having a supplicant, everybody likes that feeling. And so why should everyone who works in government be any different? They're not. So they like having people needing government. And... Uh, Here's another thing. If, if you enjoy feeling important, which if you are born of woman on planet Earth, you do enjoy feeling important, and there's no reason to suppose that people who work in government are any different, well, one way of becoming more important is hiring assistants and clerks and organizers and analysts and coordinators pretty soon. You're no longer just another government employee. You're now head of a department. And multiply this by huge numbers of people, and you begin to understand how government grows. And you justify this 
to the uh, part of the, the government that hired you, your head of department. You justify it. I could do so much more good for the American people if I had an assistant, if I had an organizer, if I had a coordinator, an analyst, a clerk. And pretty soon, you're no longer an employee. You're head of a department. And then so upwards it goes, and everyone around you wants the same And what's more, they know that if they scratch your back, you'll scratch their back. And so an associate of yours will come with you to your head. I, you know, I needed an assistant. Yeah, yeah, he really needs an assistant. Because you know full well that uh, in three weeks' time when he goes to ask for an assistant, you'll be there to back him up, etc., etc. And so it goes. Now, in this um, sad and true picture of government and its growth, um, we have to ask ourselves, where does climate change fit? And you have to ask yourself, is climate change hysteria good for government or bad for government? So again, you put yourself in the position of a government employee. And uh, again, you know, I don't don't blame government employees. I don't expect them to uh, resign or to quit. You're going where the going is good and good for you, you know. It's a uh, system we've created. It's the uh, political structure we have tolerated. And we've basically got the system we deserve. Sorry, but that's kind of how it tends to work. You get what you deserve in terms of government. and, um, And it's usually an unwillingness to make the tough decisions and do the tough things early which, again, finally imprisons you. Um, As um, Edmund Burke, the English jurist, said, we almost inevitably forge our own fetters, the chains that bind us, the government that stifles us, has usually been forged by our own internal failures. And so... With all of these people working for government in the same way that they all agree without any meetings or votes, they all agree that higher taxes, good idea, yeah, let's do that. More government, yeah, good idea. More government power, yeah, yeah, more do more that. More government organizations, more government agencies, more government bureaucracy, yeah, 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 we need all of that. Uh, how about climate change? Do they need climate change hysteria? Is it good for people who work in government? Well, if you're not sure, uh, let me tell you something that, you know, it's so hard to keep up with all this stuff. There is so much news out there, and we are so willing to be uh, paralyzed by entertainment. And it's really, you know, as the uh, government of the Roman Empire created gladiatorial concert tests in the Colosseum, a lot of that was designed to subdue the people. It was designed to preoccupy the citizens so that they wouldn't start questioning what their rulers were doing. And in the same way, my friends, by the time you have finished your days watching of TV shows and, and sitcoms and, uh, and thrillers and series by the, and I, I don't even know all the names of them anymore. I better get them so I don't sound completely culturally illiterate. Uh, but by the time you've finished all your entertainment, you obviously don't have the time or the inclination 
to read about what government is really doing, the things they don't talk about. So uh, you may not even be aware that um, 26 companies were sued by the city of Baltimore recently. That's right. And this is only one of hundreds of cases around the country. Uh, Starting in 2017, uh, cities, counties, and so far, uh, one or two states, including Rhode Island, have sued companies like ExxonMobil, Shell, uh, BP, Chevron, and, uh, and 23 other companies, all suing them for what? Compensation for droughts, wildfires, severe storms, and all the other things caused by climate change. Are you beginning to see why climate change is wonderful for government? You get it? This is going to continue. It's going to because it's a great way of getting free money to do good for the American people, of course. But I think you understand that spending money is fun when it's not your money. For heaven's sake, uh, at its lowest level, walking into Staples or Office Depot and uh, spending $150 picking up pens and notepads and clips and staplers, it's fun if it's not your money. And uh, so, obviously, government's constantly trying to get more money. Of course, only to do good for you, the citizens. And they've latched onto something. Climate change crisis. Who's it caused by? Well, it's obviously these rich companies like Chevron and ExxonMobil and Shell. That's right. So even Baltimore, even <laughs> even Baltimore, uh, jumped into the fray. And... Um, Uh, They are trying to get uh, the state of Maryland, the Maryland state court, to hear the case. Um, The companies, of course, are trying to get this transferred to the federal court in the hope that this can be dealt with. Because if this all continues to go through, now many, many jurisdictions have already paid out money. Many jurisdictions have successfully sued for money. Um, New York uh, filed suit against Exxon. The New York Attorney General is a dreadful, dreadful um, character. Uh, and that uh, accuses the company of uh, misleading investors about the danger of climate change. Can you believe that? And so, I mean, what is your chance? You know, let's say you had the ability to open up an energy company. You found, maybe you found oil in your backyard. And, you, you know, it's a real issue. Because with the, the way that government has propagated the hysteria and the propaganda of climate change, for very obvious reasons, uh, it makes it very difficult for you to function. And so there it goes. And in many, many cases, just the threat of litigation uh, and, and shareholder advocacy, by the way, because once you've persuaded enough of the farm animals formerly known as citizens that climate change is real they are also joining in and becoming the allies of government in all this horrible mess that is dragging us down into a quicksand morass of hopelessness and oblivion where is this all going to end so um 
Look, back to the basic question. Government supports climate change? Yeah, of course. And uh, government wants you to be dependent on them? Sure, of course. Uh, now, you know, think about this for a moment. Why don't you want your, the citizens who support your lifestyle, right? You're an appointee, you're an elector representative, you're a bureaucrat. Who's supporting your lifestyle? Hardworking citizens who are paying income tax. Uh, you know, do you want them to be independent? No, because then it's going to be harder and harder for you to justify all the things you want to do for them. How do you promote dependency? Okay, there are three things you have to do. If you're government and you want to promote dependency, then all you have to do is oppose marriage, religion, and financial independence of people in your country. All you got to do. How do you do that? Well, if I'll, I'll come to that in a moment, but first of all, if you realize that um, that people who are dependent on government, they're your bread and butter. When I say yours, I mean if you know if you're a government employee, you're a bureaucrat, you're a appointed, elected. Uh, people who need government are your bread and butter. The more of them there are, the better. And uh, how do you get you? Think of them as your customers, right? Because the more people who need the stuff you supply as government, then the bigger your government can grow because the more product you can sell, whether it's welfare or care, whatever it is. So who is your marketing force? Well, the marketing force are people called social workers. And again, uh, my apologies in advance to some of my listeners who are hardworking social workers. I'm not blaming you at all. You are operating within a system, and I understand it. It's a system that has created its own customers, people who would be self-sufficient, people who would be independent, people who would turn to churches and synagogues for help and would be helped back onto their own feet instead of being turned in, into permanent government dependence. All those people are now your clients, and they're in bad shape. I understand it. So you're a social worker. I understand you do the best you can do. But do you know how many social workers there are in America today? Very hard to get an exact number, right? Because you have social workers working for the federal government. You have social workers working for each state government. Um, on a federal level, there are about 700,000 minimum. And this is according to the U.S. Department of Labor Statistics. 700,000 social workers. And then when you add in social workers employed by the states, uh, probably over a million over a million social workers. Now, I want to ask you a simple question. How often have you come into contact with a social worker? And I'm going to give you the answer. If you are married, religiously affiliated, and financially independent, but independent, I don't mean you have uh, you know, millions of dollars sitting in investment accounts. I mean, you, you have a job, you work, you bring in, and you, you, you earn more money than you spend. Uh, if, you have a, if you are financially independent, you have a religious affiliation, and you also have a, um, uh, uh, a family, the odds 
that you've ever met a social worker is are very, very low. Very low. It happens, right? In fa- things happen in families. Uh, people have problems. I, I get it. But in general, uh, the huge army of social workers is there for people without families, without financial independence, and without religious affiliation. For the most part, that's the customer base of social workers. And social workers' job is to help plug these people into government resources. And so you're a government employee or bureaucrat or or, uh, uh, appointee, whatever it is, right? You love having people dependent on you. Of course. Because if you are in need of government, then government needs more taxation money, and it can grow. And instead of being a measly little ant in a hive of workers, hey, I can become a department head. I need assistants and and organizers and coordinators and clerks and analysts. And pretty soon, I'm no longer a mere ant laboring in my little um, uh, cubby in in a big government office. No, I am meaningful. I'm important. I'm doing something valuable. I'm serving the people. I am giving back to society. Right? All of these wonderful things that come from government. So uh, if you, on the other hand, are uh, have a religious affiliation, you have a family, you're part of a loving family, a functioning family, and you have financial independence, the odds are that you not only haven't come into contact with a social worker ever, you probably have no contact with the government at all, right? Well, um, no, uh, wait a moment. Uh, other than taxation, you come into contact with the government doing your taxes, right? Well, can't get away. Oh, but yeah, wait a sec. If you have anything to do with the post office, then you also come into contact with the government. So maybe I was a little bit wrong, right? When I said that if you have a strong family and you have uh, strong finances and you have a religious affiliation, then you probably don't come into contact with government much at all. Well, other than taxation, post office, riding a train, uh, coming through an airport, driving a car, sending your child to a gig that's a government indoctrination camp formerly known as public schools, um, yeah, I guess so. Other than all those things, you don't have much contact. You see what's happened? Even, even if you are financially independent and even if you have religious affiliation that provides you with, with deeper meaning in life and you have a loving family, you still are heavily dependent on government. And so obviously the IRS has to grow and get bigger to better serve you and the post office needs more money for delivering less and uh, and trains and public transport and the TSA and running the airports. Oh, yeah, all of them, because they're serving you. Driving a car, the uh, local uh, driver's license bureau and the vehicle registration bureau. Yeah, yeah, y- y- you need them. Therefore, they need more of your money. And education, well, nothing to talk about there. So even, even. Those of us fortunate enough to have families and religious affiliation and finances, even those of us with all of those things, we are heavily dependent on the government. Imagine what the government has built in terms of an infrastructure to cater to people who do not have families, 
do not have religious affiliation and do not have financial independence. Do you think it's possible that all of these government workers, all these bureaucrats and appointees and elected people, is it possible that they all agree that marriage, religion, and financial independence are not positive things in America? Could it be that all these people vote secular fundamentalist? Could it be that they all do whatever they can in terms of regulations and in terms of rules and restrictions and in terms of bills and laws passed? Could it be that they try to hurt family, hurt marriage, hurt religion, and hurt people's independent finances? How do they do that? Well, financial illiteracy in schools is a start. If you put out into the workplace people who know nothing about education, uh, who know nothing about finance, and you graduate children after 12 years of high school, of, of education, uh, they come out knowing absolutely nothing at all about money and finance, and all they're going to do is go to college where they, again, other than a very few of them, they'll also come out of college knowing absolutely nothing about money and finance. Uh, that's good people. If you're trying to run the farm, if you're the farmer or the zookeeper in the Beltway, then you want unsophisticated people financially, people who know nothing about finance, because that way you stand a much better job of making them your dependents. And if they're your dependents, then you're very important. Uh, how do? What else do they do? Well, uh, government makes sure that on a state and federal level, enough welfare payout is done to make someone who does work feel like an idiot. You feel like a complete patsy. Anybody who works feels like a fool because you can do so well in America today not working. You can get so much money and your, uh, your housing and your food. There's so much you can get. You feel like an idiot if you work. That's a way that government discourages financial independence because government loves the people on food stamps more than they love those of you who are working hard to pay the taxes that make those food stamps possible. And even that, as you know, the government's still running a deficit. They're not even paying for what they're doing. Heavy taxation. That's another way to stop you ever becoming independent. And uh, this envy of the rich, remember that heavy taxes never turned a rich person into a poor person. Never happened, never will. Taxes stop poor people becoming rich. Well, I know that some of you are going to find this a needlessly cynical perspective, but uh, it isn't. It's absolutely true. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. I'm not saying it's a deliberate collaboration. But intuitively, we all tend to lean towards our own interests. And similarly, intuitively, anybody who works for government, anybody involved in government, wants to see heavy taxation. They just do. Uh, heavy regulation of all private employers. Not government, by the way. Government always exempts itself from its own regulations. But heavy regulation of your company that is trying to keep a few employees without having to fire them, heavy regulation there because the government would much rather take care of all those people themselves than have them become independent through working in your company. 
uh, a lot of anti-wealth propaganda, right? A lot of that. Uh, the Have you ever noticed how politicians are so quick to tell you about how they grew up in poverty, right? One politician said, oh, I grew up in a small little house in a poor part of town on the wrong side of the railway track. And the next one, oh, well, me, you know, I, I grew up with a single mom and we lived in a mud house with only one room and... The next one says, oh, you, we, 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 and so it goes. They're all vying with one another to talk about the virtue that goes with poverty. See what they're doing? And again, I'm not saying they're doing it deliberately. Wouldn't you agree that there are a whole lot of things that you do that you're not necessarily doing deliberately, but they do have a very specific and predictable outcome? And it's not the outcome you necessarily planned. Well, that's how it is over here as well. And so uh, most politicians will, you know, uh, everyone's need is to think well of ourselves. And so no politicians and government employees are no different from anyone else. They like to think well of themselves. We all do. And so they're trying to help the people, right? They are simply trying to be in public service. And so when they propagate the politics of envy and speak about uh, how awful it is that everybody is, uh, is, is part of the, you know, all the one percenters and, and they're not paying enough tax, generating that politics of envy is all part of what we're talking about. They also speak about the rich shouldn't have better health care than the poor. Uh, well, that sounds decent and good and right, doesn't it? I mean, why should people, just because they're rich, have better access to medicine than the poor? Well, how about them having better housing? No, they shouldn't have better housing. That's why government housing puts people, everyone, in exactly the same kind of housing. And don't you even dare paint your front door a different color. Because just because you got enough money for paint doesn't mean you should live in a more colorful house than someone else who doesn't have, who's poor. And so we have a veneration of poverty. Um, how about uh, rich people getting better transport? No, we want people not to drive uh, Lexuses and BMWs. No, and Infinities. I wasn't going to leave you out, Nissan. Uh, no, we want everyone in public transport because that way everybody is the same. And that way we don't let the rich live better because we don't want people becoming rich because the rich are financially independent, right? They, they don't need anything. They don't need government. We need people who need government. Uh, private charter planes. No, absolutely not. They cause too much global warming. And so, yeah, uh, the politics of envy stress how evil it is to have money and, um, and how bad it is to be rich. Have you heard politicians? I mean, we've heard for years already politicians singing the song, the rich don't pay their fair share, right? You get that all the time. The rich don't pay their fair share. That's right. They don't, right? Well, excuse me. They pay a good deal more than their fair share. Have you ever heard of progressive taxation? That's exactly what we have, where the rich pay a considerably larger portion than their fair share. But um, we've created a society largely through the efforts of government 
uh, where we've made absolutely certain that the uh, the 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 uh, propaganda is against having money. The poor are the really virtuous ones in society, and the last thing we want is for the rich to do better than the poor. They've got to pay their fair share. Now, think about it for a moment. Um, how do you make money in America? Well, you serve other people. That's right. You serve other people. And I'm going to tell you something very shocking, and that is it is impossible to become financially affluent in America without having done good for a large number of people. You know, think about it. It's not just charity given. It's that they got rich because you bought the goods or the services that they provide. Why did you do that? Nobody forced it, right? Because it was good for you. Uh, you know, during the uh, Los Angeles riots in 92, uh, in certain parts of town, Korean stores were burnt down and looted. And the rioters uh, told the news outlets at the time, well, they've been profiteering on us all these years. They've been making money off us. Now, the same thing happened in 1968 when there were also riots in Los Angeles. And this is also true for other cities. I just happen to be more familiar with the figures in Los Angeles. Uh, but uh, in 1968, the rioters burned down Jewish-owned stores in 19... Um, uh, in 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 um, in 92, it was of course um, Korean-owned stores. 60, 68, 69, it was Jewish-owned stores. But the cry was always the same: "Oh, they have their stores and they make money off us." So what happened in 68? The Jews closed their stores and went uh, and opened them in other neighborhoods. And what happened in two, 1992, the Koreans closed their stores in those areas and went and opened them somewhere else. And now they cried in the same neighborhoods, oh, we, nobody, we're underserved. We don't have stores in these neighborhoods. I'm telling you exactly what has happened. Uh, because they now realize, guess what? The Korean stores were not exploiting them. They were providing a service. And why were the prices higher? Well, it was because of something called shoplifting. Shoplifting. It was because of robberies. It was because of higher insurance premiums, because of all these things happening. Um, money has a way of evening things out. Right? The market makes it all work. And uh, if indeed these stores were exploiting the neighborhood and making piles and piles of money hand over fist, don't you think other stores would have rushed in to join in this bonanza? No, it doesn't work like that. Um, if it had been that they were making a lot of money, there would have been other stores. But it's very tough running a store in those circumstances. And so um, we, we don't understand what, um, what making money is all about. It's providing a service. And so hating the rich and this kind of hatred, which is promoted by government aggressively, and then, of course, foolish farm animals join in with all of this and become the patsies of government and uh, become loud and public advocates against the rich. 
um, this is all wonderful, and it's making it more and more appealing to get a job in government, I want to tell you, because it looks like uh, it's a growth industry. It really is. Now, um, we also have to uh, understand that part of this uh, horrible process is the labeling of rich in the first place. I have to explain something to you, and that is that rich is a comparative term. It is not an absolute term, and so is fair, by the way, which is why when uh, politicians tell you the rich are not paying their fair share, you can never tie them down to numbers. Try it. Next time you attend a, a political town meeting and you hear a Democratic politician, oh, the rich have to pay their fair share. Could you please define rich? Like, from what figure is rich, and would you please tell me how much is fair? Politicians don't want to do that. Uh, they like dodging the details because they know as well as you do that what is rich today is not going to be rich tomorrow. And so it goes. And so they're not going to tie themselves down to a figure. That slogan, the rich don't pay their fair share, serves to generate envy, um, uh, wealth envy, and uh, generates the politics of envy, makes everything work very, very well if you are part of government. Uh, rich doesn't mean anything. The only way that rich means something is for animals. And that's because human desires, like our creator, are infinite, right? Um, how, you know, what do I want? It depends. If I would have had what I have now when I was 21 years old, I would have thought I was the luckiest person in the whole world because I didn't dream to think of having the things I have now. But um, how about the things I dream of now? Yeah, I do dream of things. Absolutely. I dream of being able to do things. Absolutely. And when, God willing, I have those things, well, there'll be other. Our dreams are infinite. Our desires are infinite. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. All that would be wrong with it is if for some sad reason uh, we are in a, incapable of separating our happiness from attainment of our desires. No, having desires is fine. But being able to make sure we're happy with what we have, absolutely. Happiness is a necessary state, and it is something uh, we are commanded to do. If you, if you happen to have any fealty to the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, happiness is a commandment of God. Um, under all circumstances, and any circumstances, uh, it's not a reason to temper your ambition. It's not a reason to temper your desire. But uh, happiness is a good thing. Wealth? No, not so simple at all. Rich isn't a term that applies to human beings. With animals, sure. You know, if an animal has all the food it needs, it's rich. It doesn't need anything else. Well, you know, health and uh, space and so on. But basically, there isn't such a thing. Uh, one dog will be exactly as rich as another dog if its needs are met. But human beings don't have needs. We have desires. And that's a huge difference. Our needs are for a tiny little bit of food and water and air. That's all we need. But our desires are infinite. And, and that's why it is, by the way, in, for those of you who are biblically interested, <clears throat> and... Um, and even if you're not, you're talking about a book that has shaped Western civilization for thousands of years, 
Uh, it's kind of interesting taking a look. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4. Um, it says, uh, Deuteronomy uh, uh, verse 4, in Hebrew, Ephes, Kiloye, Bechai, Evyon. What that means is that in, in following God's plan for human economic interaction, there will never be poor among you. Not going to be any. You won't have poor. By the way, English translations dodge around this because uh, they know full well that there are poor people around. So what's the Bible talking about? So uh, my English translation that I'm looking at right now, by the way, says there'll be practically no poor among you. Let me assure you, in the Hebrew original text, there is no practical. <laughs> it doesn't say that at all. Uh, it says very clearly, follow these uh, commandments, structure the sort of society that God says. God will bless you and there will be no poor among you. All right, that sounds pretty good. There's only one problem, and that is uh, only seven verses later in verse 11. It says, Ki lo evyon There'll never be an end to poor people among you. There's always going to be poor. So Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4 says, nah, no poor people. Uh, 11 says, yep, there's never going to be an end to poor people. Which is it? And, you know, presuming you are comfortable with the idea that the Bible was not written by bored Bedouins, uh, but is in fact uh, a very meaningful and important document, then we have to understand. And sure enough, ancient Jewish wisdom is very helpful on this. Um, yes, how can it one and the same time be that there will be no poor and at the same time they'll never stop? Uh, ancient Jewish wisdom explains very simply, and that is that uh, you may never view yourself as poor. And so within your context, you, there's no poor. What? This, if you don't think you're poor, and I don't think I'm poor, and all the people around us don't think we're poor, we're not poor. You're not allowed to think of yourself as poor. But how about <clears throat> there'll never be an end to poor people? That's for purposes of charity. And so what uh, chapter 15 of Deuteronomy is explaining is that uh, this is all comparative. I can look over one shoulder and see somebody who's got much, much more than me, and I can look over somebody else's shoulder and see somebody else who has much, much, much less than me. And, uh, and if I was unsophisticated and uneducated, I would look over my left shoulder and see somebody who's much richer than me. And I'd say, oh, I'm so poor. He's rich. I'm poor. And I wouldn't even look over my other shoulder and say, oh, he's so poor. I'm so rich. But that's exactly the reality, right? That's really what's going on. Because we both have two shoulders, and we can look over either shoulder. And yes, I assure you that even Donald Trump looks over one shoulder and sees Bill Gates. And Bill Gates looks over one shoulder and sees Jim Bezos. And if you don't believe me, then you truly don't understand human nature, and you really don't understand how the world really works. That's right. Uh, and so, yes, there won't be any poor, meaning, yeah, stop thinking of yourself as poor. We're not. Now, but there are always going to be poor people. Yeah, you can always find somebody to help. Find somebody who has less than you. And uh, the term rich is not an absolute term. You cannot in any way whatsoever 
accumulate all the rich people into a stadium in America and say, okay, we've corralled all the rich people. Now let's take away everything. You can't do that. And you might have fun challenging a politician. Next time you hear a politician in your local town meeting uh, talking about the rich, would you just say to them, let's say theoretically I gave you the power to gather all the rich people together into a great big stadium. Tell me how you go about it. Like who would you put in there? And they'd quickly have to concede that they were uh, talking nonsense and merely utilizing the rhetoric of envy in order to grow government and increase taxes. That is how it works. And remember that, uh, you know, other than holding people up with your gun or other than robbing or defrauding or stealing Uh, The only way to make money is by serving other human beings. There is no other way. And uh, and I'll I'll give you, and I'm not going to go into it in depth now, but let me tell you three ways, three things to think about if you are really interested in increasing your revenue, enhancing your earning power, making more money. And I want you to do that because the more money you make, the better you're making our society. And just think about it. Would you rather live among rich people or poor people? Again, I'm using these terms, even though I've just explained they're utterly meaningless. When talking about human beings, there is no such thing as a poor person or as a rich person. When the Bible speaks about poor, it's talking about people who literally in the morning do not know where their food of the day is going to come from, and they don't know where they're going to lay their head at night. I assure you there are no people like that in the United States of America. And uh, and yet in America, the politics of the poor doesn't stop. All it does is increase in intensity. But if you really want to make more money, and you should, because that way you'll be making the world a better place, uh, learn about the principles of specialization. If you're a new entrepreneur and you're starting off, do not yield to the temptation to do everything yourself. Uh, Today, you're going to fix your car. Tomorrow, you're going to deliver the products. The next day, you're going to do your taxes. The day after that, you're going to read a law book and try and uh, work out how to do your incorporation papers yourself. Don't do that. Do find out what you do best and get other people to do all the things around you. Uh, I could spend, obviously, several hours talking only about implementing this fundamental a Jewish principle of specialization. You say Jewish principle. What are you talking about? Adam Smith wrote about it in the early, in actually 1776, as he published his book and uh, speaking about um, uh, specialization, among other things. Yes, that's true. But the Bible teaches specialization in Genesis chapter 49 and in Deuteronomy chapter 33. Uh, you've probably heard me talk about it. If not, I'll tell you how you can. And, uh, and, and realize, don't try and do everything yourself. That's not part of God's plan for human economic interaction. Uh, number two, please, 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 if you haven't already done this, learn to read financial statements. You must know what a cash flow statement looks like. You need to know how to use it. You've got to be able to read financial statements. There are courses on this. Uh, there are books about it. You can get a teacher to teach you. But whatever it is, um, you cannot succeed at anything that you are not measuring. 
and money is sophisticated. It's something spiritual, so you need a sophisticated method of measuring it. Double-entry bookkeeping is complicated, but it was a genius invention when it came about, and you need to understand that. And, and thirdly, uh, regardless of whereabouts you are in your life passage, if you want to increase, then apprentice yourself to someone who lives and serves the way you'd like to. That's right. Apprentice yourself. And that word has, has deep and broad meanings. And again, I would speak lengthily on these topics uh, and, and explain what that means and how to do it. But again, a very important principle in ancient Jewish wisdom. There are people out there who are doing what you wish you were doing. And if you know how to ask, they would be willing to help you learn how to do it as well. But you need to know how to do that. And um, one of the ways in which I make a lot of this material accessible to you from ancient Jewish wisdom is uh, in something called the Financial Prosperity Collection. And I want you to visit my website and read about it because there'll be more of a description than I have time to tell you about now because we're pretty much arriving at the end of today's show. But I'll give you the website in a moment. And if you go to the store section of the website, right now there is a special huge reduction. It's about a third off, I think, about a third off the price. And what is the Financial Prosperity Collection? It is me teaching 10 hours of this material, um, specifically the practical tips, tools, and techniques that you should deploy from ancient Jewish wisdom not to learn how to invest, for that you need money, not to reduce your debt, because for that you need Dave Ramsey, but to increase your earning, to generate added revenue, to build your business, to start seeing yourself as a business professional. Um, and so you can buy this as a USB drive that will come to you in the mail, uh, or you can buy it as an MP4 download, and you can just download it instantly, uh, digitally, but in any event, it's 10 hours of video. That's right. Uh, not that I'm anything to look at, but I'm worth listening to. And in this case, you'll be able to uh, uh, see me explaining and uh, teaching these principles through 10 separate lessons, an hour each, on the Financial Prosperity Collection. So go to RabbiDanielLappin.com. That's right. My name.com, RabbiDanielLappin.com. Uh, or, if you prefer, same way, same place, you need a rabbi.com. Some people find rabbidaniellappin.com easier to remember. Some people find you need a rabbi easier to remember. But uh, in any event, if you go to the website, go to the store section, and you will be able to read up about the Financial Prosperity Collection, which is at a special reduced price. And the reason for that is because... Uh, the store, our store is closed over the Jewish holidays of Tabernacle coming up. We don't do business uh, during the biblical festival of Tabernacle. So um, hurry up and uh, go to the website now before our store closes. And again, you'll find it at rabbidaniellappin.com. The product is called the Financial Prosperity Collection, and it's 10 hours of teaching. Um tell you something it's worth a whole lot more than you're going to pay for it and if you think about the impact it can have 
provided you or whoever you, you want to share it with is in a position now to change your way of living. And I'm not talking about cutting back. Or, no, I'm talking about the things you do in terms of earning a living. For instance, um, let's just say, for instance, that you're somebody <clears throat> who uh, spends five hours a week. Right? It's not a lot of time. You spend five hours a week playing tennis or you play five hours a week watching videos or watching um, Netflix or you spend five hours a week um, at the gym or you spend five hours a week doing a combination of those things. Am I talking to you? Maybe. Are you willing to stop that and to take five hours a week to do things differently? Are you willing to do different things for five hours a week? And if the answer to that is yes, then the Financial Prosperity Collection can really change your financial destiny. And uh, my reputation is on the line on that, and I'm not worried about it because of the uh, huge number of people and the huge amount of gratification that I get from the number of people who write and tell me about how it's changed your life. And if you're somebody who has already implemented the Financial Prosperity Collection or any of the others, uh, and you want to tell me about it, you'll be making me happy. It's as simple as that. You will. I truly get a big smile on my face when I read your letters. And you can write to me also at the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. There's a tab there, there where you can contact us. And they do come. I do get a chance to read them. I answer as many as I can. And uh, I love reading them. I really do. So that's as far, <coughs> pardon me, that's as far as we can go today on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. Thanks so much for being part of the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for telling your friends about it. I appreciate that as well. And until next week, we can be together again. I wish you a week of really good times with your families, with your friends, with your faith, and with your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.